Welcome to the Rosenbox, where dancers go for show prep and candid chat. I'm Claire Kretschmar, and I'm Aron Sands, and we are dancers with New York City Ballet. All right, welcome to the Rosenbox. Today we're joined by Kathleen Tracy. She's a repertory director at New York City Ballet, and uh, we just want to welcome you. Thanks for coming, and can you introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from. And what is your history with New York City Ballet? Like Claire said, I'm Kathleen Tracy, but everybody calls me Katie. Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Pueblo, Colorado, which is a smaller city two hours south of Denver. I grew up there until I was 15. Then I moved to New York and started dancing at the School of American Ballet. Three years later, boom, got a contract, was in the company. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did you dance with New York City Ballet? I was a dancer for 15 years. So I feel like that was just enough time to experience a lot, but not too much time to not be able to create an exit strategy and have a different purpose to my daily schedule and hopefully at that point, I hadn't had a family yet, but I was looking forward to having also a family. Mm -hmm. So normal transition was pretty easy for me. And before we go too much further, could you tell us what the responsibilities are of a repertory director at New York City Ballet? Yeah, it's one of those jobs that if I were to tell somebody outside of <laughs> the ballet world, they would look at me with a very interesting look on their face. <laughs> And they would probably nod and ask me, so how's the weather out in Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> um, a repertory director is responsible for relaying choreography. We do not create the choreography, but we take whatever the choreographic style, steps, musicality, and we teach that information to any of the dancers that we're in charge of for any particular ballet. It can be from one person to all of the corps de ballet or the entire cast of mm -hmm. any particular ballet. So it's really knowing the steps, the music, entrances, exits, and everything in between. So it's a lot of um, detail work. Choreography is pretty intricate for some choreographers, other choreographers. It's very logical and very genuine and pretty natural. Mm -hmm. And also you've been part uh, at times of the choreographic process as it happens. You're the choreographer assistant mm -hmm. or the rib director helper of the choreographer as it's actually being choreographed, mm -hmm. which is slightly different than having been in charge of a piece for a few years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a very interesting, I wouldn't say completely different responsibility, but watching a choreographer work is probably one of the most exposing things to be a part of because they are putting their heart and soul into it mm -hmm. and it really does expose the person who is the choreographer mm -hmm. and my respect for those people is immense. The responsibility for me in that situation would be basically just keep up. Mm -hmm. Keep up, see what this person would like try to organize their time as best you can. 
be available in whatever capacity you can be, whether it's to be a third eye to say that works or that doesn't if they ask your opinion, Mm -hmm. or just to say, you know, I saw this person over there. They were doing this at that point. Thank you for reminding me. It's just whatever the person needs from you, you put yourself in Mm -hmm. that position, and every choreographer has different requirements for that particular job. Mm -hmm. So you try to mold yourself as soon as possible. Pretty awesome. And what was the transition period like between your final years as a dancer at New York City Ballet and then this next step to become a repertory director? (laughs) I went on a vacation with my husband, who wasn't my husband at that point. And I said to myself, in two years, I'm going to retire. I was feeling great about the ballet. I was feeling like I had done a lot. I was feeling at a good place in my life. And I knew that the person that would be my husband would be a part of my transition. And I felt like I could rely on him for balance, both Mm -hmm. psychologically as well as emotionally and sometimes physically. Mm -hmm. I knew it was the right decision because one month after I decided, and I hadn't told anybody except for my husband-to-be, I got a phone call from the Balanchine Trust from Susie Hendel, and she said, would you like to start working for the Balanchine Trust as a repetiteur? And I thought, gosh, that was something I was kind of thinking about. I Maybe. It, it, at least it would be something I'd like to try and see if I was any good at it. So I jumped into a couple of extracurricular gigs, found out that I was okay, and it liked me, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. And I started exploring that craft and hoping that maybe it might be something for me. And sooner rather than later, things worked out. And upon retirement, I told our then company director, Peter Martins, that in a few months I was going to be retiring, and he was great. And he said, well, okay, how, how about let's get you on board here? So I knew that the decision was really mine, but there was something in the universe, if you believe mm-hmm. in that, that was going to be, it was going to be okay. And I found something that would help me transition, whether it was my end all or whether it was just a, a stopping point for now, and I could kind of enjoy it. That was all I needed. I just needed to know that there was something else out there in the great big world. So that was kind of where my transition was. And I stopped in Saratoga of July 2002. And between September 2002 and I think the following year, June of 2003, I was gone every single month doing something, Mm -hmm. uh, either a teaching opportunity or staging opportunity And it was just a really great way to be out in the world of dance, still doing something I was familiar with, but something I hadn't really dug into yet. And it was still kind of like a hobby, craft. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was hoping it would work out because I was finding out that it was pretty fun and really easy for me. So that was a bonus. That's usually a good sign that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing when something comes naturally and it brings you joy. It was fairly stress-free. Yeah. Which was awesome. That's a huge sign. Like contrary, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, performing is 
filled with so many stressors yeah. um, being like exposed in that way. So yeah, to kind of go from being on stage in the spotlight mm-hmm. to a little more behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but still involved with the, yeah. the craft of ballet in a very meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And then if you're good at it, then yeah. obviously yeah. It's bonus. It's, it's a completely yeah. different skill. Yes. Yeah, and it takes a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. Not for oneself, but with the process. I had this thought, I think it was in the spring season, oh, I could teach this ballet, no problem, five hours. Well, it wasn't going to be taught <laughs> in five hours because you put the people in the room that are learning the ballet, and it didn't go that quickly. I'm like, I'm like, was that us? Was that us? Were we in that rehearsal? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. It it hadn't gone. It had. Nobody had seen it. So none of us knew it. And and I thought, gosh, having had history with Mm -hmm. it, I was like, oh, piece of cake. Not a piece of cake. It was like it was like a full buffet, and people (laughs) had (laughs) they had to really like go through the entire food stations. Yeah. To be able to figure it out. And none of the dancers had ever worked with Jerry. None Mm -hmm. of them had seen it. So that was a beast. Yeah. When you have a whole new cast of dancers who have never been in the ballet before. Or somehow. Or heard it. it. You're you're not even familiar with the music. Somehow that makes it really challenging. Like as dancers, I know that we felt that too. Mm -hmm. Like. But then when we're in a rehearsal process where we've either seen the ballet Mm -hmm. We know some senior dancers who've done it before that mm-hmm. we can right. kind of watch. Rely on, yeah. Yeah, like that goes more smoothly mm-hmm. than when no one knows the choreo. Yeah. Oh, it, it's totally. kind of, it's incredible how like just having a few people who know the piece does yeah. wonders yeah. for the speed mm-hmm. of the rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah, certain yeah. ones are more challenging than others. Yeah. And that's the process. Also, but for the people bad. that are no, not yeah. familiar, the process of putting a ballet together requires teaching the choreography, but mm-hmm. also working in the style, mm-hmm. the information, the, you know, what makes the ballad the essence, the yeah, story, the whatever it is. Yes, yeah. there's a lot more material than just mm-hmm. knowing the steps and the counts. Yes. And with, you know, somebody like Jerry Robbins, he's not just about steps and it is intention and it is atmosphere and it is musicality. And, you know, I worked with him on that particular piece so I remember these little details that I wasn't able to give to the dancers during the spring season, mm-hmm. but then I was able to revisit that and just share with them a little bit of what Jerry had originally, or at least had said in my time, mm-hmm. about what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. So those little nuances are important. And, I mean, the Robbins ballets are so different than anybody else's, hands mm-hmm. down. Truly. And to give the dancers that kind of information, do you consult notes? Do you consult videos? I mean, obviously you have personal experience with some of these things, Mm -hmm. but like what is your approach to handing down things like intention? I think with the individual choreographers, it depends on if I use notes. I would say with the Robbins Ballet, I would never walk in not having notes simply because it's like watching something organically happen. Everybody goes a different direction. Everybody does maybe slightly something different. Everybody's pattern is a little bit different. It's like organized, I wouldn't say ever, chaos, but it's an organized construction that is not obvious 
So you can't just say that's your opposite the entire time and you're going to stay mm -hmm. opposite that person. Whereas with the Balanchine Ballets, you can find your opposite 99.9% .9 of the time mm -hmm. and know that you will be doing exactly opposite or maybe even the same as that person just on the different side of the stage. It's very symmetrical with the Balanchine. Robbins is just, he just wants real. He doesn't want perfectly lined up people. He wants, although he does sometimes, but there are mushels and there are different mm -hmm. constructs that he has approached. So the architecture of a ballet is very different. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. really reminding me of two things. One, the first Robbins ballet I ever did and was also the first ballet I ever worked with you, which it was in memory of. Oh, I, yeah, I, I was that. in the court. And this, what you just said, fully describes, I mean, any Robbins ballet, but that one in particular. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, it's so specific with every individual. And that's mm -hmm. the thing. Balanchine may be specific about a dance, a group, but this is like each person in the court had a yeah. different journey mm -hmm. yeah. and a different space and in music and, and Your yeah, own map. It, it really tells yeah, it really tells this story, but Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I mm -hmm. totally I mean that's one of the ballets that I think of with a Robbins is like you go through with each individual person and this is where you go and this is what you do and this is the foot you step on and this is the count you step on and there's no way that I couldn't walk into a studio without my map. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> that airplane section, one step, step, arbisk. I remember three, everybody goes at a different time uh, and a different pattern, and it makes no sense. There's not logic. But then it gets. But there is logic. But then you see what then what it creates mm -hmm. on stage is so different than what you would see in a balancing yes. ballet or anybody yeah. else's. So that that's incredible. But I'll walk into probably any other choreography based ballet. I'll never need a note. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've I have written notes, but I wouldn't use them because yeah. they're usually wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I have like a, a mind that remembers things. Yeah. So I'm lucky with that, and I can also look at something and have it stuck in my head. So I don't know if I would quantify it as a photographic memory, but I remember everything. Yeah. Whether I say something or not, I just. You know, mm -hmm. it, it might be the version or it might not be the version of a particular ballet, but that's how my mind happens yeah. to Your work. Your iCloud space is like <laughs> the biggest the biggest you can get. It's a couple gigabytes, yeah, maybe yeah, mega sure. gigabytes. Yeah, the max gigabytes <laughs> of all dancers. And I don't even have to purchase it. Yeah, it's free. It's, it's free. free. <laughs> Would you mention a few of the choreographers whose work you are involved with? Okay, so mostly... I feel like the luckiest person on earth to get any Balanchine ballets. Like, that to me is like the pinnacle of a New York City ballet rep director mm -hmm. because he was one of our founding choreographers. So, to get to work on his ballets is just about the best you can get mm -hmm. because they always just seem so perfect. Like, that's to me great. So, I get to work on a lot of Balanchine. I have you know, bits and pieces of the Robins, bits and pieces of Peter Martin's. I do a lot of Chris Wielden's. I did one outside choreographer, Douglas Lee. He was a dancer with Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. But besides that, I'm mostly those are the four choreographers that I have worked with or worked on their ballets. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite ballet that you are able to impart to dancers? 
yes and no because usually my favorite ballet is the one that I'm in the studio doing. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. that sounds like too. I know yeah. it's like I don't know. I really love that ballet because I'm in the studio doing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, I particularly love Polyphonia. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Wilden. Christopher yep. Wilden. I love that it's so complicated. And I love that it makes dancers really stressed oh out. I know that sounds horrible, but because I'm sitting there saying, you can do that mm-hmm. because I know they can, like it doesn't stress me out at all because I know that once they get that aha moment with either the musicality or a step or some piece of that puzzle when they get it, it's like the victory dance that I have in my seat in mm-hmm. the audience is amazing. I bring out the foam finger and start <laughs> waving it because I know that they did exactly what they mm-hmm. had the potential to do. So that one, for its intricacy, I definitely love. But then, you know, I discover things about ballets that I hadn't seen before. I adore La Valse. Mm-hmm. I think it's just so mysteriously wonderful and something that you can just look at and you see a story but it's not really there and it's very mysterious and all the things that are wonderful about it mm-hmm. Vienna waltzes we just did I watched the first waltz which you guys were amazing in thank you and I saw how genius Balanchine was in capturing how dancers can do a waltz around trees Mm -hmm. in a big group and make it so romantic and so beautiful and so relevant. And it's like watching these little gifts all the time on stage, you know, um, how they harvest themselves and and how I love watching dancers discover it. Mm -hmm. Like they get out there and they're part of this something that they may not have been a part of before. And they're like, oh, they take this mantle on themselves and they wear it with such pride. So that I love. I mean, name them all, and I love yeah. them all. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's that is. It yeah. happens to us when people ask, "What are our favorite ballets?" Yeah. It's like, well, the ones that are my favorite are the ones that are recent in my memory mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed. Um, right. Slightly different question: How many hours mm. do you spend studying a particular ballet before you go into the studio and deliver? the material to the dancers? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I can tell you that the Nutcracker, I spend zero time. <laughs> wow. That's, that's so amazing, right? That's inc- <laughs> That's like a, yeah. It's, it's a record. No, I mean, record. that one's like, I spend no time. But then you bring out a ballet like Polyphonia or Episodes or Agon, some of the more complicated compositions of music, you have to reacquaint yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think I spent about two solid hours with episodes. I would watch the movement, and then I'd put it away, and I'd think about it. And then I'd watch it again. So it's about, like, ten minutes per viewing. And I'd put it away, and then I'd watch it again. And then I'd start, like, going... Because I already, you know, have experience. I was lucky enough to get to do the female role, but then just kind of remembering what her partner does Mm -hmm. probably in total I spent about two hours that actually seems like so short it seems so small to me it is like I think I would have to study something like episodes (laughs) for maybe like a week like really studying it 
But I think, I mean, but that's the nature of this job is that the more you do it, the more familiar, the yes. more the more you're efficient mm -hmm. with doing your homework mm -hmm. and when you do your homework. I don't have to do that, you know, midnight cram session anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know the steps of this ballet and I'm still trying to learn them. I mean, there were some ballets that I spent six weeks learning mm -hmm. because I was just green mm -hmm. in this craft. And it was a ballet I had never seen before. We don't do it. It was one of Chris's ballets that he did for San Francisco Ballet. So I had to really... I created, you know, counts. I had to figure out what these people were doing. And it was really hard. But Did that you was... get notes or did you just get a tape of it? I got a tape. And then I spoke with the woman who was in the rehearsals. Uh -huh. But there wasn't much that she could give me. So wow. then I had a conversation with Chris. And Chris said, here is the structure for the finale. Now, granted, there was like 40 minutes before that <laughs> that I had to learn. <laughs> but he gave me, it was called um, the last movement of this particular ballet. The ballet is called Continuum. And it's the same music as Polyphonia. So it was Ligeti. Mm -hmm. And that was, on you know, really complicated to begin with. But their last movement is like our first movement. So Disorder of Polyphonia is like Devil's Staircase for Continuum's finale. So it was really complicated in the dark for couples. Which makes it super hard to see Couldn't when you're see them. trying to study Ugh. the ballet. Right, yeah. so you just, you do your best. And yeah. <laughs> so I staged it for, for this company. It was hilarious because Chris then went to, it was for the Australian ballet. He then went later to, you know, rehearse them and put them on stage. And he was like, so it looks good. Everything's there. You did teach something wrong. And I said, well, that's a miracle that it, most of it was intact. Just, just one? Just, just one thing yeah. wrong? Yeah. He, he, he said I only did one thing wrong. I had people going the wrong way. And I was like, that's fine. It was only one couple. Boom. Check. That was all right. I've considered that a really big success. Yeah. That sounds like a big success. I mean, I feel very fortunate in, in this day and age to have so many tapes. Absolutely. Like yeah. videos of the choreography that, like, as dancers, too, we can access. Yeah. Whereas, like, mm -hmm. I, I just don't really know what it was like many decades ago when, oh my God. like, tapes of performances of all kinds were not as easily accessible mm -hmm. or yeah. um, they just weren't taped. Because I know that there, mm -hmm. I mean, something like episodes we were talking about, there's this solo oh, yeah. um, that was created, like, for Paul Taylor mm -hmm. in, that was, like, the fourth movement of episodes. Mm -hmm. Yep, it was beautiful. But then, like, I guess all that has existed since that initial show is, like, is photographs and written notes mm -hmm. and then word of mouth mm -hmm. passed right. down through Paul Taylor and Peter Frame. Exactly. So to recreate something like that, you really do have to kind of like recreate. I guess what I'm trying to say is that like I I'm one in awe that we have these tapes and Thank that God. we can do that. I'm in awe of people back in the day who could like remember choreography mm -hmm. and pass it down by word of mouth. Right. And that we can revisit something like a lost solo and mm -hmm. still have like the essence of the solo mm -hmm. right. on a stage today. It's pretty miraculous. Yeah. Um, those kind of projects are really such historical treasures and 
without that kind of access, we lose part of our history. Mm -hmm. But the great part about ballet, in my opinion, is the oral tradition that we all get to be a part of. You know, you learn from a teacher, your teacher learned from a teacher, and it's just the old-fashionedness mm -hmm. of it is what I still adore, is that, you know, I learned this from so-and-so, so I'm going to tell you exactly what that person told me. Whether or not it's still relevant, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it is what it is. It's the most human way. <clears throat> yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Yes, you, it's you, personal. You feel like sometimes that like when you're listening to people that have worked with Robbins and Balanchine themselves, I feel like I'm hearing their words mm -hmm. of the things that they have said about the ballet. And that is like the closest you can get because unfortunately we didn't get to work with them yes, or even yeah, know exactly. them. So yeah. this yeah. is literally the closest you can get. And, yeah. you know, I can watch a tape of that dance and it will, I will not hear the words. Yes. Right. So the, yeah, I, the, the importance of verbal uh, yeah. coaching and information mm -hmm. and i would say too like as dancers the information sticks better when you receive it from a person Absolutely. another person like it's a real gift as a dancer to go into the studio and to be given like clarity about steps and intention mm -hmm. instead of like going straight to the video because It just makes it harder for us because in a way, like when we have to watch a video at the same time we're trying to learn it, it's like we're also kind of embodying the repertory director role and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. trying to be the dancer at the same time. But then really, though, the information sticks yeah. so yeah. well when someone's like, you do this on five and then you have a big gesture here mm -hmm. on eight right. and this intention is present with this movement, right. something like that. So. Yeah, it's a real gift to be handed down that, and it mm -hmm. makes it easier as a dancer right. to remember and to receive, and then to ultimately you know, hopefully do well right. on and the, the stage. Well, yeah. but also, I mean, that's what that's what it's all going to culminate in is that presentation to our audience members and giving them that gift because no ballet should stay the same. It should always evolve. Mm. It should always, you know, continue to be better. Mm-hmm not changing steps, but just continue to grow. It's not, you know, a, a statue that's been chiseled and frozen in time. You, mm -hmm. you know, we get different dancers who have different interpretations and different kind of musicality, and it's all relevant. It's mm -hmm. all important, and it's all personal. And that's why our audience keeps coming back, because they want to see something or someone grow, mm -hmm. you know, through the years. And without that kind of personal context that we create in the studio, and that's, you know, I mean, it's my favorite part of the day is to be in the studio, mm -hmm. because that's when you can see if somebody's got it and they're good to go, or they just need a little bit more, yeah. You can, mm -hmm. you, you can do a little bit more with that, and then that's going to take you where you need to be for the stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of encouragement can only come from human-to-human -human contact, and nobody grows by looking at a video. Mm -hmm. You don't see the energy or the spontaneity that that person performing on the video might have had. Mm -hmm. You know, you just see a two-dimensional figure, and it's not as real mm -hmm. as being in present company with you know maybe somebody who was there when it was created mm -hmm. yeah speaking of being in the studio i feel like your schedule 
especially our time, I feel like you still pretty much have a dancer schedule because a lot of mornings you're here teaching class, <laughs> which is class in the morning with the dancers, mm -hmm. then rehearsing throughout the whole day different ballets like we do, but also being here present for the show. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage that? Plus now, not just, we, I, we know it's not as physically demanding, not that it isn't, but not as demanding as perhaps having to do these things oh, as a absolutely. dancer, but a lot of other demands. Plus now having a family and, and mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a bigger outside life. Well, I think balance comes into play. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, raising a family is really hard. I mean, you're in charge of human beings and mm -hmm. hoping that they don't, you know, get broken. Yeah. <laughs> in so many ways. And also in the studio. You you like absolutely. you have that responsibility. It's it's for yeah. human beings and I think whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So it's but so here's the here's the good news is that like coming to work is like my stress free time. This is like the easy <laughs> part of my day. I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. I'm not raising children. But I am responsible for human beings and for, for dancers who are at different stages of their lives. And, you know, some of them are brand new. And I usually don't interact with them as much in terms of rehearsals. But I do get an opportunity to see them for class. And I can watch their growth and I can kind of get to know them a little mm. bit. But it's not quite as intense. And I've built a lot of really solid relationships with those of you who you know have been in my studio and we've shared the time and we've shared the opportunities of these ballets but yeah the schedule usually gets pretty tiring and I don't usually get an hour off I don't usually get a half hour off I might get to go home and eat dinner or at least cook dinner for hungry mouths that w await <laughs> and then I come home and I'm done but you know it starts at 6 a.m. when I get up to walk the dog mm -hmm. three miles mm -hmm. all year round <laughs> but I find that yeah exactly all weather the dog it's is an, an all weather dog, dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I find that to be very cathartic for me mm. like I need the time to just kind of walk in a bubble not be responsible other than, you know, to my dog, which she's really not that demanding, just needs her hour. Mm -hmm. So we go out, we do our thing. And then, you know, if I don't have to teach class, I always take an exercise class in the morning, five days a week, to make sure that whatever I have to do in the studio, I don't hurt mm -hmm. myself. And I want to still say in some kind of physicality, mm -hmm. you know, able to do or demonstrate something, mm -hmm. sort of. I don't pretend to be a dancer anymore, which is fine. And because you all are so adept at descriptions, I can say something or I can kind of indicate and you all get it. So I don't have to sit there and, you know, do a double tour and make you mm -hmm. guys, well, can you show that again? Yeah. Because <laughs> it won't be successful the second time around. I'll be in the ICU. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done a double tour. <laughs> no. So if you did a double tour no, one day, I mean, I did it on the impressive. trampoline when I was a kid, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but your position is very physical. It's very active. Yeah. If not in the same kind of dynamic way as when we do the steps, 
in a very consistently active and mm-hmm. also mentally active mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And those two things, when you do, when you're both very like mentally and emotionally present and physically consistently active over a number of hours, like mm-hmm. that adds up yeah. to, yeah. A tired human being yes. at the end of the day. At the end yeah. of the day. No, I'm pretty yeah. tired. I'll, yeah. I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we've mentioned how you navigate your own energy levels, but how do you navigate the fluctuating energy of the dancers and, and their emotions throughout the day? Because um, as much as our job is physical, there's mm. a lot of like mental and emotional components to that. And yeah, like a sensitive topic, but mm-hmm. how do you approach navigating different personalities different and moods. different moods mm. and you know how our energies change throughout the day because I know we both know like we're not always giving a show quality or mm-hmm. like that kind of extra because we're kind of in a way pacing absolutely so anyway how do you navigate that as a like rep director in the front of the room but also helping us to be our best right I mean I think the first thing that I take into consideration is day of week then I think about what hour of the day that is. And then I look at the type of ballet. So there's so many factors that go into when you walk into a studio. And then it also depends on the individuals or mm-hmm. individual who is in the studio. So I take a quick look and I do a, like a broad spectrum assessment really fast. I see if people are either sitting down or standing up. If they're sitting down and it's probably around 4 or 5 o'clock, we're starting to hit the wall. Mm-hmm. So depending on where we are with the rehearsal process, if I know that it's a teaching rehearsal, I don't really expect performance quality. It's just let's get the info out there and hope for the best that you'll retain it by mm-hmm. tomorrow. If it is at a place where I am expecting we got to start like – buckling down we got to make sure that this is super solid that you feel comfortable and confident that I know that the product is going to be the best it can be I have different expectations but then I can come into the studio having like all these expectations and then somebody has a either a bad day they're going through something they got bad news something I then have to switch gears And if somebody tells me that in the front of the studio before the rehearsal starts, then that makes it much easier. Mm -hmm. Um, If I have no idea and I see somebody weeping in the corner, I'm wondering, is it personal or professional? How do I broach that subject? Sometimes somebody doesn't want to be approached. They just want to do their thing. And I try to give them that sensitivity or that space. I might say something like, okay, does that make sense? Or that was better. Can you try this? If they're receptive, then I know that they're in a place where they could probably break through, but maybe not pushing them at that point is in their best interest. But all of that kind of analysis that I do took years to acquire. I remember hearing things from colleagues who were more experienced than I was and their approach, like, don't say something negative to the dancers after a performance because that's usually when they are at their most vulnerable and they just put it all out there. So really, unless they say, you know, give it to me, the good, the bad, the ugly, I never say anything 
And as we try to be conscious of those kind of times, there is always a right time. There is always a right place to be able to give, you know, critical information that might help the dancer develop or evolve Mm -hmm. in that particular role. So, you know, over the years, I've heard things that make sense. I've also been in a place where I can just say, this isn't going to work right now. Let's just go through it and call it a day. Mm -hmm. So it's really just navigating the dancers and all the personalities that they have because dancers have many different personalities. I have different personalities and sometimes we're having a good day and sometimes we're not having Mm -hmm. a good day. So, you know, it's just being sensitive and also just being respectful and hoping that we can meet in the middle and just be as kind and generous and compassionate when necessary Mm -hmm. and as necessary. So, and then mostly just being professional, just doing the job Mm -hmm. so that we can get it done. And that's usually the basic foundation that I try to start with, and then we build from there. That was that was a really well yeah, articulated, very very answer. well articulated yes. answer. Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like it reads it like right. it it like personally I can feel that I feel like it's a conversation that we have through the language, how the rehearsal is going to kind of read each other's mood. Sometimes the dancer's mood changes right. drastically if all, all of a sudden the rehearsal is not going well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, not letting yourself be down and, you know, having the assistance to do the steps better, to not allow it to get to you. It's, you know, very important to have that support from the front of the room. Well, but that's also something that we... I mean, at least I try to do is I try to be a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Like when I see something good, I try to say that was good. That wasn't necessarily the experience that I had. Mm -hmm. And I would have appreciated that had I gotten it more often. Mm -hmm. Somebody saying, you know, that was really good. And taking notice and, and giving positive feedback because that is what usually gives the dancer the most confidence to get out on stage. Yeah. And it helps quiet the chatter when the ego starts getting a little bit chipped away at. Mm-hmm. And if they know, if one person knows that there's a support for them, it just makes it that much easier. You know you can fall back. Or even if you make a mistake on stage, even if you do something that felt dreadful, mm-hmm. that person's not going to you know, expose you and make you feel bad about it. They're going to say, you know what? It happens. And you're going to be okay because it's just one day. And tomorrow you have another chance to do another day. So, you know, it's just, it's allowing ourselves also to be human and not trying to, you know, set ourselves up for failure by expecting perfection because that's never going to be achieved. Yeah. You know, it's just seeing the individuals out there, which is the most intriguing and interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. That takes years. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Years and lifetimes to to understand. Mm -hmm. And And to accept. Mm -hmm. And to accept, yes. Yeah. Katie, can you tell us one of your most memorable coaching experiences or experiences with a repertory director and then how that has impacted you today in your current position? So I was a dancer in an era 
that there wasn't a whole lot of coaching, that it was teach the steps and kind of see what happens. Kind of like, you know, I wouldn't say like pushing a baby bird out of the nest, but seeing if they took flight. And so one of my first big opportunities was getting to do polyhymnia in Apollo. And I remember seeing my name up on the schedule and my name up on the casting sheet because in those days it was the night before and a week before we would find out if we were doing a ballet. So I had a week to prepare for Apollo and it was overwhelming, exciting, scary as all get out. But I remember Sally Leland taught me the ballet and she was very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. No, no fuss, no muss, which left a lot of room for me as a person to be able to do the ballet, which I now really, really appreciate because she didn't try to say, well, it needs to be like this person or that person that came before you. She allowed the person in front of her to do the role. And during the week that we had to prepare, we also, it was three new muses and Peter Bull. And Peter had done the role before, but the two other muses, one was um, Zipporah Cars, who did Calliope, and the other was Margaret Tracy, my sister, who did Terpsichore. So it was like this little sorority because we all looked really alike. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard to tell us apart. But that was what made it so stunning in its presentation was there was like this uniformity, which was beautiful. And it was also... Because Zipporah and I used to dance all the time together, and Margaret was still is my sister. <laughs> Last I checked, um, it was special in that way. And Peter, of course, was Peter Ball. I mean, he was mm-hmm. beautiful in Apollo. But Peter Martins came in, and he had done Apollo for many years, and was able to, you know, coach all of us, tell us things about the ballet give us insight into some of the things that he remember Mr. Balanchine telling him and telling the muses. And Mm -hmm. it was like this, talk about cram session, it was this overwhelming influx of information. And when I got out there and I did the ballet, I didn't have an out-of-body experience, but I remember being on pins and needles and thinking, I can't believe I'm doing Apollo. I remember just going out there and doing a couple of the Batmas and I had a little bit of a moment and then I was like, okay, I got my moment over with. I got my stage nerves out and then I was able to dance it Mm -hmm. and kind of feel like I got to be part of a legacy that I never saw coming. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. And then Sally, again, she taught me divertimental number 15 and she was so generous with her time and I was debuting in the fourth variation, the turning variation. And I had done the ballet at the school, so I was very familiar with it. But she said, if you need me to do extra rehearsals with you, just give me a call. And it just so happened that I was doing my debut up in Saratoga, and we didn't have any rehearsal period before that time. It was just a week off, and then we jumped right on stage. Mm -hmm. So I remember calling her and asking her if she would come in and just at least look at me for a little bit. And mm-hmm. she did. And it was 
it was just lovely. You know, she was so kind and so encouraging and, again, matter of fact and no fuss, no muss. But it was just the support that you could feel was really, really amazing. And then the last ballet had nothing to do with dancing, but it had everything to do with pantomime. And I'd never learned pantomime in my life. But when we first mounted the Sleeping Beauty, there's tons of pantomime in the ballet. And I was in the way back of the, the big rehearsal studio here at the theater, learning the Lilac Fairy. And I just remember peeking over all of the you know principal dancers and the soloists and just having my eyes really wide open and watching Peter demonstrate the pantomime. And the thing that struck me the most was that he said, pantomime is not port It's using your hands to express words and sentiments and expressions. And so he said, you have to be very clear with what you say and how your hands are held. And all of those details, I'd never in my wildest imagination knew anything like that. It held this fascination for me. And later when I did do the role of the Lilac Fairy, then it clicked. And then now I'm teaching, you know, the pantomime in The Sleeping Beauty. And that will always stick with me as there's a purity to how you teach people to speak literally on stage. And that was really cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very good. Katie, what would you tell your younger rep director from today's rep director? Oh, you're not going to get it right the first time or the first 10 times, but you're going to get it eventually. And some ballets are going to go faster. And some are going to go slower. And you're going to have to maybe use your notes a couple of times. Don't cram. <laughs> Very important. No one should ever cram. Oh, but no. Ideally, no one should ever cram anything. No, yeah. it's not quite as effective. And you know what? Just be your honest self, whether you're in the front of the studio or you're amongst peers learning something. Because at the end of the day, we just have to be genuine human beings. I keep coming back to that because when we start pretending and we start mm. acting like somebody that we're not, we're not going to get what we need done. Yeah. And I feel like probably in the last 10 years is when I've allowed myself not to be somebody that I'm not and to have a sense of humor and to be realistic about what the expectations and the level of success a particular ballet might or might not have. It has to be a real process, even though I have always, always elevated people that I see on stage, whether it's at the opera or the ballet or Broadway or whatever, they seem mythical and otherworldly to me. I try to remember that they're still human beings, even when they step past the legs of the wings, mm -hmm. but that they can create this illusion but they're still, you know, in their heart and soul, they're still people and, you know, they go home and they, you know, have dinner and they drink their Gatorade or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, to recover. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think just knowing that 
it's okay to be patient with oneself. And I've started using that for certain dancers is just be patient. You're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Maybe not today. Maybe not next year. But one day you'll get there. And whatever that there is, it's their journey. It's their path. It's their whatever their trajectory takes them to. So I love that part of discovering new things mm-hmm. every day. And that's what's cool about like the hindsight is twenty twenty is that you can say, I know now what I didn't know then, but I'm also still learning. Mm-hmm. And that's what we get out of this profession is that there's not one season that you don't learn something new, which is great. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. On, in, at the Rosenbox. We were joking about this before. Katie yeah, was like, is it on? Is it, is on? In? Is it in? Are we at? Do so, you bring your own? Yeah, do you B-Y-O-R-B? <laughs> um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us. My this pleasure. was a really rich conversation. Can't wait to get in the and studio now. I'm yeah. very excited. Oh, good. Good. It's going to be really hard, though. Yeah. Not cocker. Yeah, watch out, because I'm going to become... <laughs> Really, I'm going to come in so prepared. <laughs> yeah, she's going to research Nutcracker like it's nobody's business this year. It's going to be the yep. best yet. Yeah, every year. Uh. All right, thanks, guys. And until next time. Bye. Bye. There have been ballets where I've gotten into the studio and I may have not really paid attention. And dancers are like, so what is that right there? And I was like, can we do a TBT? D yeah. moment. We'll I'll do one. some research <laughs> mm-hmm. and let you know. So when I tell people that I'm doing research, it means that I probably didn't look at a video before yeah. I walked into the studio. And you're doing it's your more best. Research <laughs> than <your> research. Best. <laughs> yes, I need to actually do the research. <laughs>